and welcome to our first ever Women in Leadership podcast as part of Garden International School's Garden Pod. This podcast is linked to our Women in Leadership networking series, a monthly opportunity for women at Garden to connect, learn and listen to a wide range of speakers, whilst generally getting inspired by amazing female role models. My name is Nicola Nelson and I am the Head of Primary at GIS. Before we get started and I introduce our brilliant guest, I'd like to just say a few words about where the idea came from to have the networking series and these accompanying podcasts. My personal support and passion for supporting women at work is nothing new and I've always tried to mentor my female colleagues and encourage them to be brave and aim high. Aside from my interest in supporting women at work, I am passionate about all aspects of inclusion. Whilst I've recognised and experienced challenges specific to women for a long time, I believe we are finally living in an age where it is okay to have a forum like this in which we can speak honestly about inclusion and what it means to be a woman in today's world of work. The other idea behind the networking series was for it to be an opportunity to meet and share our experiences as women so that we can further support each other on our journeys. Over the course of this year, we will bring a host of different women speakers and facilitators to our live sessions, followed by a podcast recording when we'll interview our speakers. When I introduced the first meeting a few weeks ago, I wanted to talk firstly about a few of my own personal experiences. My career started in 1994 when I started teaching in a big secondary school in the UK. After three years, I went to work in Jordan with my then husband to be a head of music and my son was later born there. Following the breakdown of my marriage and for the next nine years of my career, I was a single parent returning to full-time teaching out of financial necessity when my son was three months old. When I interviewed for a secondary music teacher vacancy, I distinctly remember making sure that I did not tell my interviewers that I was a single parent of a three-month-old baby because I was afraid that they would not choose me for the job, that they would think I could not do the job very well because I had a baby. I did get the job and of course I could do the job. For the following nine years, I made sure that I did not allow the fact that I was a single parent prevent me from applying for promotions and doing exactly the same amount of work as anyone else, because I was highly aware of the prejudices that existed then in relation to single parents. But in actual fact, those nine years were some of the best of my life. That was almost 20 years ago, and I think and hope that in most organisations, we've moved a long way from the attitudes and cultures that made me feel that way. The second thing I wanted to mention and the main driver for the idea behind these sessions is the issue of female role models. We talk about the importance of role models for our students. Our students need role models who look like they do and speak like they do, but we need that too. I've had 11 jobs since 1994, including the one I'm in now. And of those 11, I've only ever had two female line managers. I remember trying to emulate some of the, the men who I had as line managers and thinking, is that how I need to be? In that, is that how I need to behave if I want to have that job next? And I started to worry that I would not be able to be like what I saw as successful male role models. The first time I did have a female boss, she was bold, confident, not afraid to say what was right, especially when it involved the education and safeguarding of children. She was a huge influence on me, and I remember feeling reassured that actually I did not have to be seen as aggressive or dramatic as a woman in charge, which is the way I'd been made to feel previously. 
It is a fact that women are still playing catch up in every aspect of life, not just our professional ones. We know from data and research that the data shows that women are still underrepresented, underpaid, and often put into situations in which we are actually less physically safe because the world is quite literally designed to put men first. It is important to say at this stage that I have worked with and continue to work with some incredibly inspiring male colleagues. But the point I am trying to make is that I am not a man. And in my years as a developing female leader, I desperately needed a female role model to aspire and look up to. We all need role models and a role model should be someone that we have the possibility of emulating. Even now, I know that I still need to be surrounded by inspiring women. Women inspiring women is an incredibly important aspect of any organization's culture that needs to be nurtured and encouraged. So without further ado, I want to invite our first ever speaker slash facilitator, Shakeen, to begin our session. Shikin is a global HR consultant for Shell. She grew up partly in Singapore and partly in Malaysia. She started her career in finance, but then found her calling as an HR practitioner whilst volunteering as the COO of a not-for-profit education center, which she co-founded. And she's going to talk to us a little bit more about that shortly. She joined Shell's graduate program in 2010 and has held roles in both Malaysia and the Netherlands. Shikin is passionate about global citizenship, inclusion, and values-based cultures, which she strongly believes continues to play an important role in how senior leaders should think through their human capital strategy. Shikin has just started a sabbatical year during which she will study for an MSc in organizational and business psychology at UCL. I met Shikin through my local gym in TCDI where I live and then discovered that she also lives in my condo after speaking with her for only a short amount of time about her values and her beliefs, I felt inspired and empowered and she has quickly become one of my female role models and someone I now count as a friend. Our first session with female colleagues at GIS was led by Shikin and she aptly called it, Who is Looking After You? Because of the pandemic, we've had, we had to have the session on Zoom, but it was actually still a fantastic experience and an opportunity to connect, which we all know has become an even more important priority than usual in 2020. So, Shikin, welcome to our first ever Women in Leadership podcast. How are you today? I'm well, thank you. And Nikki, thank you so much for having me. Um, it's such a privilege to be here talking to you and also the wider community who will be listening in to this podcast. We are so delighted to have, have you and super excited to talk to you. So I, I want to start off by asking you a little bit about your background. And I'm really excited to learn more about your, your education and in particular when you set up the Fuji School as well. Sure. Um, all right. Thanks. So, so for me, um, I was born and raised in Malaysia for the most part of my life. But there were a few key moments in my life where I spent it in Singapore, in Australia, as well as uh, in the Netherlands, where, you know, it's either because of my dad's job where we had to relocate or it was just for my own educational work. So I feel um, really grateful to have had those opportunities. But um, fundamentally, I think when I think about those times that I've um, moved around, uh, there were a few key moments that shaped me as a person. Person. So if I had to go back to um, just my experience growing up in Malaysia, Malaysia is a beautiful multiracial country. And, you know, you're, by the time, you, you know, you've been here for a while now as well, you've probably had a chance to also experience the fact that um, the different races essentially quite naturally, um, they 
mingle and the kind of diversity in terms of food and stuff is kind of enjoyed quite naturally as a day-to-day -day affair by most people, irrespective of the race that they come from. Now, uh, growing up, um, despite have, sort of growing up in this multiracial environment, I always felt a distinct sense of how different I was. And, and of course, um, over the course of my years, much later, I've come to realize that that sense of being different is one that one would always carry because there are different facets of your life that you can always feel different about. And that wasn't so much that something that was so different. But as a 14 year old, as a teenager, I really felt it. Uh, the first 13 years of my life, I acutely felt that I was different. And as a 14 year old teenager, when I was in Singapore um, at the United World College, that was my first experience of finally fi finding a place where I felt that I could develop my sense of who I was, not because what society told me I was by virtue of my race or my, the religious group that I was part of or the socioeconomic background that I was part of or the school that I was part of, but rather simply because I was shaken. So at the United World College in Singapore, um, it was a school that actively encouraged diversity and one that also actively promoted inclusion through the school's curriculum and the, the staff makeup and so on and so forth. So that was the first time I felt that I was in a space where I could find my voice. Now, I don't want to make it sound like it was a bed of roses because even at UWC, I was different in many ways and I could, find, I could feel that way. Um, and certainly going home, um, it, trying to find who I was as a person, negotiating that wasn't the easiest process of my parents either. So whilst I was going to school, spending more than eight hours a day in an environment that just celebrated inclusion, and I had parents who were aware about what diversity meant being Malaysians themselves. The fact that I wasn't compliant to the stereotype that they had in their mind of who they are 14 year old teenagers should be, Mm -hmm. was a negotiation process. And I think that is something that as we go on to different facets of our life in different workplaces, you'd always find that you're always negotiating to find what is my true voice? Yeah. Yeah. What do I privately think? And what am I publicly confident about? Mm -hmm. So I think, yeah, I think, and I think that's a critical role that schools play in particular because... That's, that's really interesting. And do you think that if you hadn't gone to Singapore and had that experience at UWC things would have been different, that you would have developed differently? Or do you think you still would have gone through the same process of evolving into, into the person that you were becoming? Do you know, that's a, a bit hard because there's a part of me who believes, really, really believes that it was the education environment that I had and the teachers in particular who gave me that space um, to find, to say that it was okay for me to find my voice in a place that was not defined. So I can't help but feel like that was critical. I feel like going, the fact that I went home to parents who had a certain sense of, sense of basic values was also critical in that process. So whilst I was out there trying all sorts of things and trying to find out who I was, what my parents always instilled in me was that sense of respect that no matter how you were interacting and trying to find who you are outside, there's still some minimum rules that you need to sort of be respectful of. And whether that's to the people around you, your parents, your teachers, to... So I think that two, that two sort of boundaries in a way was what I needed. Um, and then later on, I'll go on to different parts of my life and, and I'll continue meeting different people who'd slowly start strengthening that 
I want to say like a tool set in my kit. Yeah, yeah. So you had a, a really fantastic balance, that combination of your parents who gave you that values base, but also, and, and that space, but also yeah. and the opportunities, as you say, at your school to, to experiment, to try things to, it, kind of with that safety net, in other words. Yeah, which is, which is great. So not to put pressure on the schooling system at all, but I do think that was a critical part of my life. <laughs> I think that is so interesting because we're having a lot of conversations at the moment about, I think the pandemic is just put back on the agenda for schools. Well, what skills do our, do our students need, you know, for the future? What, what are they going to need in 2030? And the whole discussion around understanding different cultures and really being really deeply being able to understand where other people are coming from with their religion, their culture, et cetera, is, is even more important than it's ever been, I think at the moment. So, mm, yeah, absolutely. Interesting. Cool, okay. So you, you had, a, a, it sounds like an amazingly interesting um, and you know, varied experiences growing up. Mm -hmm. And then you joined Shell's graduate program. And, and what, talk, talk to us about Fuji School. So where did that come in the kind of the timeline of your, of your life? Yeah, sure. So, um, so actually um, my, my dad uh, and my parents actually come from really humble beginnings. Uh, but my dad in particular um, grew up in a very, um, sort of um, really poor family, one of um, 12, if I'm not mistaken, now 13, because one of them passed away, as they did um, back in the day when, you know, uh, infant mortality rates was quite high. So, um, yeah, so my dad himself um, essentially was able to give us a, a quality of life that was far better than he ever had. But the reason that even happened was because there was an individual in his life, his uncle specifically, who was really um, motivated and cared enough about my dad's progress in his education to motivate him to go through school and sort of encourage him to think about other options. So because of that relationship, that dedicated individual, my dad's commitment to his education, we effectively today uh, are blessed to enjoy a life that I think we never would have in the past, you know? So my dad came from this really poor family. He went on to attending Victoria's institution, institution in Kuala Lumpur, and then he went on to earning full scholarship for his A-levels in his chemical engineering degree at the UK. So that sort of domino effect of the role that two things, education and a dedicated individual plays in enabling the potential of many other people further down the few, the generations was something that was so important to me. And, and I felt that it was something that every one of us can do something about. So Fuji School um, came about basically on the premise of that. So um, back in uh, late 2000s, Deborah, my friend, um, actually was doing some work for UNHCR and she met um, four kids, four Somali refugee kids who were effectively um, staying at home and, and not doing anything because refugees, don't have a right in Malaysia. They don't. They can't attend school here. So Deborah came, came back and sort of said to me, "Hey, Chicken, I met these four kids, and it's really sad that they're just sitting at home." So Deborah and I decided that, well, the two of us have got time, some amount of time in our spare capacity. So maybe we can tutor them, right? So so Deborah would go during the weekdays to to, to tutor them um, English, and I would on the weekends um, tutor them maths, just one hour a week. But during the course of um, every week that we were going there, more and more of the Somali community would see us and, and they start asking us to essentially tutor the kids as well, right? Um, and that was when we realized, of course, given both of us had day jobs, this was not gonna be possible. 
So um, we basically put our heads together and said to ourselves, you know, what can we do about this? Because, and that was not even a discussion because both of us genuinely believed in two things. Every child deserved the right to education and it's about being inclusive, irrespective of who you are. That's a fundamental right. So yeah, we kind of put our heads together and literally on the back of a Starbucks napkin, we literally put down a few words in terms of what is the problem to be solved? What can we do? What resources do we have? And um, we essentially started Fuji School. So Fuji School started with um, us employing a mix of um, volunteer refugees as well as, uh, as um, volunteers from the likes of Taylor's College, in fact, um, to come and tutor and teach um, refugee kids in this little apartment that we rented. And uh, we started out with school. So that's what happened. <laughs> oh, it's so inspirational, so inspirational. You had a vision. And also you, you had your, your values and you know what you believed in and what you said about, I mean, it, what you said about education changing people's lives is so powerful. And that's, that's what I've always believed, you know, even mm. my own personal experience being the first person in my family to go to university, it's life-changing. And that, as you said, that domino effect of, of quality of life that it then changes down the generations. And yeah, it's, it's so inspiring. And you're still involved with Fuji School now. Yeah, I mean, it's it's unbelievable to think that Fuji School now has been around for over 10 years. Yeah. Never in our wildest dreams would we have thought that would have happened um, back in um, 2009 when we first started the school. So today, um, the school has educated over 500 students. And I actually stepped out formally in 2016 when I moved to the Netherlands for work. But now today, um, I tend to work with Deborah more on a project basis. And because, because the, the world's evolving, needs are evolving, and the kids themselves, because many of them, unfortunately, don't get resettled. Mm -hmm. And as you can see, like over the last few years, borders have started being a bit more selective borders are closing on refugees due to like nationalistic priorities that we've seen swooping across the globe more so now with the pandemic so um I, what i do is uh, i work with deborah um, on an ongoing basis on some projects and we think about how do we then address the growing needs of our kids who once used to be four years old they used to attend our school as a four-year-old and today they're full-blown 18-year-olds with their own dreams and, and ambitions and, and and the thing is by attending fuji school they develop the sense of, I can do this too. So what do you do with this capacity that you've developed? And, and so Deborah actually has gone on to creating a variety of projects, um, whether that was a social enterprise or um, academies for the children. And that's also a way of keeping the elder Fuji school students or alumni engaged yes. because fact of the matter is they, still, they are still here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, it, it's amazing the work that you've done. And you and you were so young when you set it up as well to be so inspiring and so visionary at such a young age. It's 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 amazing. It really inspires me. Okay, so just to just to kind of change the direction of the conversation a little bit, um, I'm really interested to talk to you about some of the things that we that we discussed in the face-to-face -face session that you led for us at school. So so talking a little bit about um about well-being at work, and in particular, um, your thoughts on the role of well-being in the workplace for everyone, but for specifically for women as well. All right. So thank you. I hope. I think I don't know if you heard that earlier, but that was my alarm going. So hopefully oh, that was fine. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Um, yes. Yeah, so um, to specific. First of all, um, 
many, many companies now, they offer all sorts of wellness programs, right? And, and it's not uncommon for companies to have some sort of a wellness budget or even um, time off or, or flexible work hours for, stu- uh, for, te- uh, for, for staff, or even create, they've created some form of flexibility on the, under the banner of wellness or well-being, right? Um, when I first think about the topic of well-being, I think about three key things. I think about it as how are we essentially creating a community of people whom we are working with who are effectively healthy, engaged, and supported. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And when you think about those three words, they, equally, they apply to men and women equally, mm-hmm. right? And, and whilst um, both um, you know, men and women may have different needs and may have different ways of articulating it, and, and of course, depending on your own responsibilities, you might have different ways of um, sort of interacting with what does being healthy, engaged and supported mean to me? Mm-hmm. I think if we think about well-being first and foremost as that rather than X amount of absenteeism or like less, um, you know, I'm doing this because I want my staff to be more productive. I want my staff to, I want to do this because I want my people to make sure that they come to work. I think you start shifting mm-hmm. the perspective of well-being. Right. So, and so for me in particular, when we think about the type of work we're increasingly doing, they are, they are, it, it's knowledge work and it's interdependent. Yeah. So beyond um, lost days at work, it's much more about the quality of our interactions and the quality of decisions that we make. Mm-hmm. So when I think about well-being, and, I, and then for women as well, to think about how am I feeling and how is this affecting the way I show up at work and how is this affecting the kind of decisions I make, whether it's at home or at work? Why is that happening? So I think before even thinking about the solutions, which is, oh, you know, maybe an hour off or a spa day Mm -hmm. um, or, you know, an hour workout at the gym, it's much more understanding what does well-being mean to me if I had to think about it in terms of the quality of my interactions, the quality of decisions I'm making in every aspect of my life, because this applies not just at work, but in actually a lot of the relationships we have in life. Yeah, across the board. And and would you say that actually we have we have a sense of responsibility for ourselves? So so the you know we're talking about well-being at work, but actually, what is our responsibility to look after our own well-being? Absolutely, and I think that's where the conversation um, when we had the session with your um, the women's network began. We said the question was really who's looking after you, and and women in particular, they're often focused on their role as caregivers, um, irrespective of their role in life. But who's looking after you is equally an important question that one needs to ask. And it's not about being selfish. And a lot of people, I think, I think the thing about well-being is it's gotten a bit lost in this whole movement of self-care and self-care has been positioned as the bit, oh, it could be a bit um, selfish, but it's not about that. It's about understanding how am I feeling? What are the quality of decisions and interactions I'm having in my life? And, and how do I feel about those? What's causing me to, what could help me there? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So so we have that, we have that, it starts with that responsibility mm. to actually properly know ourselves, reflect, think about what's, yeah, what can we do to support our, our own well-being? How am I going to improve the quality of, of my own life? Yes. And also as, as leaders in, in, in organizations, what can we do? How, how can we think strategically about how we support women in the workplace? Because as you said, it's well-being for everybody, but there are specific things that do 
often affect men and women differently. So what are those strategic things that we can think about when we're thinking about women at work? Right. I think that's a good question. So I think depending on the organization's maturity in terms of talking about issues that's specific to men and women, that could differ in terms of the kind of conversations we have, right? So let's just take an example of say, we're dealing with an organization where, or a community where the awareness on issues that's specific to women is still quite new. The role of um, additional support that par- that women, for example, can appreciate, can expect from um, mem- from the partners or whoever, uh, from the household members, right? So even sort of understanding first the community that you're working with, I think is the first step. Am I dealing with a community where it's normal for women to have their husbands or their, their you know, their partners engage with additional work at home? Or is that an added burden that's there on the woman, yeah. right? Who's playing the caregiver role at home? Or is, are there traditional gender norms that's associated with, this, with the community that you're working with? That's one. So for me, I think first it's really understanding where the gap is and what's the additional support that the woman needs. Mm-hmm. Secondly, I also think about it um, from a perspective of, you know, how inclined are they to ask for help, yes. right? And that those are things that I think normally you'll, you'd be able to gauge from, say, team discussions when you ask the question of, um, you know, what help do you need? Mm-hmm. You'll be able to very quickly ascertain the, your point A by first under, um, seeing the type of feedback or questions you get or even answers like are people even do people even know what help to ask or do I need to help them with this so again as an organization if this is something that you truly believe in as a value the onus is on the organization to create that supportive environment based on this kind of feedback that you're picking up through your interactions to your staff and then you can come up with the you know um, suite of uh, tools that's always available out there in terms of you know what type of support what people need so I think for me it starts first with really understanding the community that you're working with in this in this instance and then helping them through that mm-hmm. um, the other thing I would also say is um, training and educating um, managers to be aware about the specific gender norms right so this could be something as simple as um, women tend to be seen um, differently in certain situations than men so when women um, are assertive it's not uncommon that men might label them as being aggressive Right. So those are things that also affects one's mental wellness or or emotional wellness. So you can think about the type of trainings and the kind of conversations that you need to have with men and women and ranging from, uh, you know, how do women show up at work right down to how do I support them when they need help? Right. So it's pervasive. Yeah, absolutely. And and what you referenced there about, you know, those 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 words that we use, those descriptions that we use for, you know, a woman who is assertive is often seen as being aggressive. And I spoke in my introduction about role models. So so what are your what are your thoughts on role models for women at work? What do you think about that? You know, Nikki, your story was one that I can absolutely relate to. Um, as I was coming up in Shell um, in 2010. I was still finding my place in the organization and, and trying, I was, I'm an economics graduate by background and I was in HR because it was something that I really believed in. It was important. I felt like, you know, human capital is probably the most infinite capital that you can have. Right. So how do you deal with this better? But I must admit um, one, 
um, majority of the leadership team members, um, or actually the most senior roles, tend to be occupied by men. So at, that was the first thing where I realized, you know, I was thinking, oh, well, what happened to all the women? Like, what happens? Because at the point of entry, um, HR was predominantly female as I was at the level that I was coming up, right? But then somewhere at the top of the ladder, you see only male role models. And so then what tends to happen in between, you actually end up seeing female leaders who look a lot like more like the male leaders of the organization than women. So I started asking myself, like, you know, where is my place in this organization? So you've actually hit the nail on its head when you in your introduction. I think with role models, you're looking to find who you are in a person that can be relatable. But I'm also not one who wants to emulate that particular person. I've seen that happen where you end up seeing almost like minions of particular leaders around the organization and people talk about it. They're like, oh my God, look at the mini so-and-so, right? Because, and you said, and that, that authenticity quotient just goes away completely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so for me, I think it's much more about, you know, finding re- someone that's relatable and understanding what is it about them that makes you feel like you can relate to them and then starting to hone your leadership identity. And guess what, Nikki? I think you don't need to have a particular position to hone your leadership role because even as a mother, as a friend, as a partner, uh, you are you're leading something. You you are in just to the person that that you are, right? So, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So that's my personal view around role models. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Leadership at all levels. People leading in different parts of their life. It's that. It's it's what we define as leadership, isn't it? And I think you're right. Yeah. You you don't have to have a particular high up position to to have that title of leader. And the other word that you use there that's really interesting is authenticity. So yes, of course, it's important to have different kinds of role models, but. You know, it's also important to be who you are, to be authentic, to find out who you want to be as a leader. Because if you're not authentic, you're not going to be happy anyway. Whoever you you've had as your role model, and when you actually you know get to that that new position, if you're not authentic, it's it's not going to be something that fulfills you. So that's important too. Definitely. Yeah, exactly. And I think the, the the trouble now is that particularly with social media. People become there. There's a dearth of um, influences or role models, and then and and especially for the impressionables or the, those who are quite persuadable, they may not necessarily understand what emulating that person means, right? And and so again, going back to the role of education and, and environment that you, you you cultivate for children to grow up in. What are the kind of thoughts that they're having about what are they interacting with social media and what their own ideas of role model is and how are they developing that sense of who they are? Mm. I think that's all pertinent for the kind of environment that we're growing up now. So that the authenticity piece doesn't get lost. Mm. Authenticity doesn't mean I'm this is who I am and take all of me. <laughs> it's much more about, you know, finding your voice in the environment that you're in. Yeah. Yeah, and that whole issue of, of social media, that's a whole other podcast, isn't it? About the impact of social media on our young people and how we, how we, you know, still allow them to have that space to be who they are whilst being influenced by everything that they see. Yeah, it's, it's a big topic. Um, just to return to, to the, the issue of well-being then, and we've, ta- we've mentioned a few times the pandemic and that, you know, that's obviously that's what's defined 2020 for us all. And think, and you know, well-being, as you say, it's been mentioned more and more. I think because of the pandemic and the issues is, it, that have been mentioned. So, so what are your thoughts on have we needed to think differently about well-being during the pandemic? 
Yeah, so here's the interesting thing. I think we've, we should have thought about well-being in the ways that we think about it in 2020 now, but I think the, the thing about the gift of the pandemic, if I can even call it that, has been that it's elevated yeah. the ways in which people must think about well-being, that it's beyond just mental health. Mm-hmm. Well-being is about flexibility. Yeah. Well-being is about being able to decide that I can't, I'm no longer as good as I am writing this email now and just being able to shut down. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I think what the pandemic has done for us, it's elevated the, the conversation on well-being, not just when it comes to mental health, which has been like an ongoing theme even before the pandemic, but it's just provide, give it that much more focus that well-being is actually multifaceted. Well-being is being comfortable in, in your workloads and showing up in a particular way. And it's, I think it's also making um, women in particular think about what does it mean for me to be well whilst serving multiple hats that I have on. Yeah. Right. The number of women that I've spoken to at work who have said that, you know, I've the gift of the pandemic is that has been that now in the hours that I use for commuting, I can now spend it on me, either working out or just having a bit of a quiet time. It's it's been immense. But I'm also not going to lie and tell you that a lot of the women I've spoken to have actually disproportionately taken up the role of the teacher at home. Yeah. And so, so I think what the pandemic has done is it's forced us to think about what are all the other invisible roles that's being played, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right? Uh, and, and when we think about well-being, we must absolutely now realize that well-being is such a, it's complex, it's multifaceted, and that well-being is a need not just by me as a person, but the people around me as well. Yeah, I love that. I love your your phrase, the gift of the pandemic, though. I really love that because because we've you know we we've there are so many negatives and 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 negativity and and of course it's it's awful, um you know and it's really cast a shadow over twenty twenty. But I think there are some things that have been silver linings, and I love that that um phrase, the gift of the pandemic. Um, but yes, also as you as you say, a lot of women are the ones that have taken up that teacher role at home or. They, they have taken up those additional roles. So, so it's a balance. Yeah. And I can imagine the stress, like, you know, what your team are going through, right? Yeah. Because, yeah. because Absolutely. it must have been, you know, quite an experience for yourselves. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, we have those staff members who, who are teaching couples, you know, they're both teachers, they're both teaching online, and then they have their kids at home that they're, that they're teaching as well. So it, it's, yeah, it's been incredible. It's been an incredible balancing act um, for us as leaders to try and look at, at well-being in that sense as well. So, yeah, loads of loads of um, questions and, and discussions and issues to get into. But, yeah, it's been a real learning experience and we continue to learn. Brilliant. It's been like, sorry. No, go ahead. No, go, go, go on. No, good to see. Like just hearing you speak as well. I think I hope that it has brought compassion to the forefront. Yeah, I think. And I think when we think about the three things I was saying about well-being earlier: healthy, engaged, support. Are my people healthy? Are they engaged? Are they supported? Compassion is the first step to knowing what those words mean for the people around us. And I think. That has been the gift of the pandemic as well, which is we've become compassionate towards strangers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Yes, absolutely. Yeah, and it's that, and it's the the community. And we talk a lot a lot about community at GIS, and we've had lots of discussions about how the way that we've got through and are continuing to get through this this situation is the community coming together even more than it ever has before. You know, and we're a huge community, almost two thousand students, three hundred and fifty staff, and you can't possibly know every one of those students or every one of those those families, but. But yes, having compassion for strangers and people that you don't know, um, yeah, has, and we've seen that worldwide, haven't we, as well? It's, it's been incredibly important, that sense of community. And again, if I think if I can steal your phrase, the, the gift, one another gift of the pandemic is that sense of community, that worldwide community and that worldwide compassion that we hope, you know, has really been brought to the forefront. Yeah. So, yeah. Cool. Thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure, which I knew it would be, to talk to you today and to learn more from you, as I always do. And just before we, we sign off, can I, can I ask you to leave us with just one main suggestion to take away that when we're thinking about how to look after ourselves as working women, what should we be thinking about? What should we be focusing on? Pay attention to that emotion in you. That makes you feel that something's not quite right. Yeah. I think we tend to um, use that women unfairly often, I think, get dismissed for being overtly emotional. Mm -hmm. So I'd say pay attention to that emotion and sit with it for a while. Yeah. And discover what is it about your well being balance that's perhaps suggesting you to pay a bit closer attention to. Yeah. I love that. I'm going to do that. I'm going to do that this weekend. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you to everyone who has listened to this podcast. Um, hope you enjoyed it. Hope you learned something. You found something that you could take away. Take care. And hopefully you will tune in again for our other podcasts in the future. Bye-bye. Thank you, Nikki. Thank you, Shikin.